0: Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life with the advisors from Foster and Motley. In this podcast, they share their mission to help individuals, couples, and families achieve the life they envision by providing a comprehensive wealth management experience. Join the seasoned team of experts as they explore actionable steps to improve your financial well-being and answer your most pressing questions.
1: Wealth management is not done in a vacuum. The advisors at Foster and Motley work with experts in various fields to help make sure your entire financial life is working together. That goes from what they do with financial planning and investment management into areas like estate planning, insurance, and others. In this episode, we have financial planner Dave Neenaber and a guest who happens to be one of those very experts to help explain why and how those relationships work. Thank you, Patrice. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Jake Samad as the first guest on our podcast. Jake is an attorney and partner at Robbins, Kelly, Patterson, and Tucker here in Cincinnati. Jake has a number of different degrees, undergrad from UC, a law degree and MBA from the University of Pittsburgh. The team here at Foster and Motley and our clients most commonly work with Jake on a state planning matters, that Jake works with privately held business owners in a number of different areas of law. Um, Jake is married to Amy and has two children. They live in College Hill. Jake was named as a 40 under 40 winner in 2017. So I hate to let the cat out of the bag, Jake, but I'm guessing forties knocking on the door. Uh, just happened, Dave, in fact. So thanks for that reminder. Well, happy birthday, Jake. Thanks. In addition to that big birthday, I'd like to call out a little known fact about Jake, and that is a beer named in his honor. I just can't imagine an intro without including that fact, Jake.
0: It's a fact that, you know, I don't know how little known it is. I I don't mind sharing it, but thanks for bringing it up. And the name of the brew, Jake? It's the Jake leg, and it's found at Brink Brewing in College Hill. Cool. Yeah.
1: Well, great. Well, Jake, we really appreciate you joining us today uh, to talk more about state planning and some of the things that may be on our clients' minds. We've been working together for a long time. My uh, my calendar
0: says 10 years. Does that match yours, Jake? Sure. Ten, uh, time flies when you're having fun, Dave. I would, I would have said it's less than that or more than that, I guess, depending on the day, but yeah, that sounds about
1: right. Well, good. Well, hey, uh, appreciate you joining us. Let's just dive in here to some things that are kind of on my mind, things that we commonly hear from clients when working together. So having your first guest on to talk about planning for your death, are you sure we couldn't come up with a better topic for today? I was just
0: going to say, I don't know what uh, your listeners did to deserve this, but for me to be the first guest and talk about death and taxes, I mean, what better way to start, right? <laughs> Now, estate planning, it's not all about planning for your demise, right? No, That's right, Dave. I mean, a lot of what we talk about through the process is not only what will happen if something were to happen to the the client or the client's spouse, but also what happens if something unforeseen happens during that client's life, if they're unable to manage financial affairs, for example, or if they need somebody to help uh, them to make medical decisions. So we talk about kind of why planning during life and after their passing can be important. In addition, we might involve techniques that deal with planning during your life to achieve certain goals after you're gone, whether that's involving your children or grandchildren in your overall plan, whether that's to avoid estate tax or to just make gifts more efficient. Uh, There's lots that goes into this more than just death and taxes. I have to
1: think, Jake, our, after that intro, our listeners are definitely sticking with us for the duration of this podcast.
0: I can't tell if you're being serious or messing with me, Dave, <laughs> but I'll go with the former. All right. Well, hey, let's talk about powers of attorney for a second. They sound
1: great in theory. You give power to some other person to make, uh, we'll start with financial power of attorney to make decisions on your behalf. You know, I've experienced with my family, I show up to, a bank to help my grandparents' affairs. And the last thing that bank wants to do is to talk to me and honor some piece of paper. So can you give our our listeners some practical advice on a power of attorney and perhaps what you should do beyond just signing a document and appointing an agent?
0: Sure. So the power of attorney is meant to give someone the ability to act with respect to financial decisions on someone's behalf when they're not able to. There's two main kinds. There's one that's immediately effective. We call that a durable power, and it's not affected by principles, disability, or the passage of time. And there's what we call a springing power that only comes into effect when the person executing the document needs it. When you take those documents to banks or other financial institutions, Dave, as you know, there can be problems. So one of the things that is beneficial sometimes is to uh, take that document ahead of needing to use it to a bank uh, or a financial institution so that the agent can actually be added onto the account as a power of attorney. And that way the person has the ability to act uh, and the financial institution can take their direction when it's necessary. That may be more comfortable for clients who are in their later years than some who are in their earlier years but having the document in and of itself should be enough. It's just that sometimes taking those extra steps can be helpful.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, When we're working with clients, we typically have their IRA, their Roth IRA. Uh, We have that power of attorney added in advance of needing it. One of the concerns I hear from clients is I want this person to be able to make those decisions, but just not today. So is that where the springing power comes into play?
0: That's where a springing power can come into play. Uh, a springing power requires a doctor to write a letter or a note to have attached to the document to say that it's now effective. The problem with the springing power is now not only are you relying on the financial institution accepting your power of attorney, they also have to accept the documentation from the doctor. So one of the ways to use a durable power is to have the power, have the agent added to the account but not necessarily give the agent the document themselves. So they don't necessarily have the the document in front of them to be acting on at any given time and explain to them that your hope is that they're helping in areas where they need help and not necessarily acting on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah. So that makes good sense. I think about us setting up power of attorney at Charles Schwab. Uh, So in that example, you described that power of attorney gets added, but there's not necessarily a communication until it's needed, who's going to make that communication? Are you going to have some sort of a written instruction or how do you see that typically play out?
0: Yeah. I think there are multiple ways. Written instruction is is one of the ways. Typically what I see clients do is give some amount of instruction to uh, the people that they've named as to who to contact, whether that's you or whether that's their attorney Whether that's uh, their CPA. And then once that happens, it kind of springs the plan into place, right? And so people start acting uh, at that point based on the fact that there's a need and that we're sure that, you know, it's necessary at this point to start acting.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful. That's one of the things we do here at Foster and Motley is just have that letter in place that, hey, if you notice, I'm having a tough time making decisions. We seek our client's permission in advance on who, uh, who we contact and kind of what order that goes in. And of course, keep your estate attorney like Jake involved in that as well. And
0: it goes without saying, Dave, that whoever the person is that you name as your agent, implicitly by doing that, you're trusting them, right? So we want to make sure that we continue to keep these documents up to date with people that still make sense. So there are sometimes where we run into people who have executed documents 5, 10, 15 years ago, and the folks that made sense then no longer make sense. And so that's why continuing to update these documents and keep them front of mind is important. Yeah. Timelines,
1: I'm curious about that because one of the things I find paralyzes people from getting a plan in place. There are several. One, I don't want to talk about my demise. Two, I don't want to pay someone to talk about my demise with but three i just don't know who those people are going to be and you know 10 years from now my circumstances could be a lot different so is there a general time frame you're thinking with clients like hey let's make the best plan for the next x years knowing that at some point we're going to have to revise these documents
0: yeah absolutely i mean the idea when we talk we don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good so we start thinking through if something were to happen in the next several months up to the next several years. What would make the most sense now? Because it's always better to have a plan in place than to rely on what happens if you don't have a plan in place. So making a decision with the best information that we have currently generally makes the most sense. Once the documents are in place, changes to the order or the people who we've named are relatively straightforward and simple and are not the same as having to redo your whole plan So if the changes are simply the people that are acting, those changes are pretty straightforward and are done in a cost-effective manner. That's really helpful, Jake. So we talked about
1: power of attorney from a a financial standpoint. I'd like to switch the conversation to the healthcare side. Two of the, the common documents that you help our clients put in place are a healthcare power of attorney and a living will. I think it'd be useful to describe you know, what those documents are, but then also when you have two healthcare documents, which one supersedes the other as far as a decision-making uh, mechanism?
0: Sure. So this can vary from state to state. So this conversation will be specific to Ohio, um, but in Ohio, we have a healthcare power of attorney and a living will are generally the two documents that you hear most commonly discussed when we're talking about making healthcare decisions. The healthcare power of attorney gives someone the ability to make healthcare decisions on the principal's behalf. right? So the person executing executing the document is giving someone the authority to make decisions if they're incapacitated. Those decisions can be as simple as yes to medicine, no to a surgery. I don't want to be at this hospital. I do want to move to this doctor, all the way up to and including end-of-life care decisions. The living will then gives direction about what those end-of-life care decisions should be. So to your question, Dave, which one kind of takes precedence, the living will is a directive, and we're telling people what we would like them to do if certain situations are true. So if the person finds themselves in an end-of-life state, either a terminal condition or permanently unconscious state, they can't communicate for themselves, they've directed ahead of time what they would like to have happen with their end-of-life care. And because they're the one directing it, the living will overrides the healthcare power of attorney. And so the healthcare power of attorney can make decisions up to that point. But if the healthcare power of attorney does not decide that they want to stop treatment and the person does have a living will, the living will would override in that situation, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, I really appreciate you not giving the... uh, the lawyer answer there of it depends, it depends. Right, um, right? You know that's true in Ohio. That's not true in every state, but at least for a lot of our listeners here in Ohio, that's really helpful. Um, I think the the situation I encounter the most is you have a, a couple and they have several children. They're fine with the spouse making those end of life decisions. Uh, but they don't want to put that burden on their kids. So if there's two kids, they don't want to put one in the place of saying, okay, I've talked to the doctors and this is the end. We're not going to sustain further treatment. I guess the question embedded in that scenario is, do you always need a living will?
0: Not necessarily. Uh, A living will is, I would say, optional. I would say about 50% of my clients decide that they do or do not want a living will, right? So it's kind of a a coin flip. I think to your point, Dave, when you have a spouse who you trust will make a decision in keeping with your intention, a living will may not be as important. Whereas if you are relying on your kids to make the decision for you, it might be nice to give them that additional guidance. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I mean, some people feel very strongly that no matter who is making the decision, If they were in that situation where they were either had a terminal illness or were permanently unconscious, and the only thing keeping them alive was artificial hydration and nutrition, then they would want the treatment stopped. And for those people, a living will makes a lot of sense. That's really helpful. Um, So I'm trying to think of
1: barriers when I'm talking to clients and they say, do I really need to talk with an estate plan attorney? I can think of a thousand other things I'd rather do with my time and money. Can you help us understand you're going to pay for it one way or another, whether you do a plan now or you don't, not having a plan is a decision. Can you tell us more about that, Jake?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, everybody uh, in pretty much every state, and I say pretty much every state has their own plan. It's just what that state's legislature thinks is appropriate for your plan. And you know, the Ohio legislature has set forth a, a statute of dissent and distribution, which are fancy words for saying, if you pass away without a will, here's where your property will pass. And the way that that is handled is through the probate court. Uh, And so there's a process that we go through to make sure that assets are collected and then ultimately distributed. It's funny, Dave, uh, a lot of times the statute of dissent and distribution is similar to what people ultimately want to have happen. Property passes back and forth to a spouse, assuming that that spouse is the parent of the children. And then if the spouse is gone, it goes to the children. Uh, So it's not that much different from the plan that we might come up with uh, as we talk through this process. The difference is how it's handled and whether or not the probate process is managed through a carefully crafted uh, document, like a, a good, a well drafted will, or if we avoid probate altogether, through the use of trusts or beneficiary designations or other other non-probate mechanisms that help us to avoid that process altogether. And so to your point, you're either going to pay for a plan on the front end where you're coming up with what you want to achieve and what you want to have happen, or your heirs are going to pay for the administration of your estate after you're gone. And typically, if a plan is not in place, the work and the time involved and the costs incurred is greater uh, if you don't have that plan in place.
1: Well, I'm going to let you off the hook here with a bit of a, it depends question. I know going in, it's, it depends, but as far as estate planning goes, say you're proactive and you want to have your wishes documented and carried out. What does a plan go for? Say a husband and wife, couple of kids, retirement accounts, brokerage account, $5 million net worth? What's a range of an estate plan that you'd be looking at?
0: Well, it does depend, Dave. And I appreciate you giving me that freedom. I mean, I think the first day of law school was the day where we learned to say pretty much to any question, it depends. (laughs) Uh, But in this case, it really really does. Uh, The 5 to 7 million net worth is instructive in the sense that it kind of gives me an idea that under the current exemption limits, we may not be concerned with estate tax planning. Uh, we're really more concerned about how we're planning the administration of everything. Uh, but what it doesn't tell me is how those assets are situated and what types of assets make up that 5 to $7 million net worth. Um, once you have a better idea of that, you can really kind of dig into what the plan is going to cost because any good plan is going to deal with the assets themselves and do the work that's necessary to make sure that those assets are coordinated with the plan. There's nothing worse than having a really well-drafted estate plan completed and then realize none of the assets have been coordinated with that plan. And we're pretty much back to the drawing board to get everything into the trust and to administer the estate. So really the cost is driven by what all is involved. You know, To give you a, a simple idea, uh, and I would say if the, if the net worth is less than that, we're talking about bank accounts, Maybe an investment account, retirement accounts, uh, life insurance and a house. You know, the plan can range anywhere from $1,500 to $3,500, really just depending on what all is involved. It can go up from there, depending on what additional planning needs to be done, whether that's. Uh, tax planning, whether there's you know generation skipping issues that we have to consider whether the character of the assets is such that it takes a lot of work to make sure that those assets get coordinated but it really does just depend on uh, what ultimately the goals are and what we're trying to accomplish. Well that's really helpful. I think you know as a comparison we said you
1: can either pay for it now or pay for it later if someone comes to you with an estate and the deceased had five million dollars what does the law allow that you could charge as a fee?
0: Yeah. So there are guidelines in many of the counties in Ohio where the probate court has set a, a schedule that effectively, if an attorney doesn't exceed the guideline fee, then the court will approve it almost automatically. And so there are general guidelines to think through, and and it does get uh, relatively eye-popping when you see the difference uh, in a five to seven million dollar estate versus a five to seven million dollar trust administration that avoids probate. Typically, when I estimate the fees on any given state or trust administration, in the back of my mind, I typically think that uh, a non probate administration is going to cost somewhere in the third to half of what it would cost if we were doing a full estate administration. Uh, and that's from an, an attorney perspective. So, That's usually our fee. Um, It doesn't mean that just by having a trust administration and avoiding probate, you're going to avoid all of the headaches that come along with someone passing away. I mean, there's work to be done. It takes time. There's detail involved, but the cost is generally anywhere from a quarter to a third to half of what it would be if if we don't have that planning in place. So on. You know, the, the difference between not doing a plan and, and doing a plan and saving the, let's say, let's say your plan is a, a really involved plan and it costs you $5,000. That type of estate is going to cost you, would it cost your heirs uh, quite a bit more in its administration? And as a disclaimer here, Dave, uh, all of these fees are hypothetical just because like I said, it really does depend. And I know we joked about that, but it is very specific. And you know, one of the things I hear a lot is uh, I hear clients say, well, my friend got an estate plan and it cost them $500. That can be true. I mean, there are people that can find folks to get the documents done, but just because someone did a plan and put it in place and didn't charge that much money, uh, I wouldn't necessarily equate it to the plan that someone who focuses in this area uh, might put together, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, totally. And I'm not looking to you know nail down a very specific dollar amount. I think the takeaway here is just how much more expensive it is if you don't have a plan in place. That's right. um, and on top of that, you're leaving the decisions to the court and not to your own wishes. Exactly. I would like to add a shameless plug for a previous Foster and Motley episode when we talked about estate implementation. Uh, one of the things you and your team at RKPT do is uh, provide a letter following an estate plan of update beneficiaries, change titling. You oftentimes take care of the home in some manner. So if you could just speak to that for a couple of minutes and then we'll include a, a link in the, uh, the summary
0: of this podcast as well. Yeah, Dave, that's a really important point. Uh, you can have a great plan, but to the extent that assets aren't coordinated with a plan, one of the goals might be undermined. One of the the main reasons that we do some of this planning is to avoid the probate court and the the probate process. There's a time and a place for involving the court, depending on your life circumstance and the, the things that we're trying to anticipate with respect to beneficiaries. But a lot of times it's more expedient and in some ways more efficient to avoid the probate court. And so these plans that have that as a goal that don't work through the extra steps of coordinating assets with a trust or making sure that the beneficiary designations are adequately completed really kind of undermine a lot of the planning. And so we like to be really intentional with that implementation phase because really the plan in some ways is only as good as the implementation of it. Totally agree.
1: I think oftentimes it helps clients reflect on why do I have all of these accounts, um, When you have old employer plans, you need to be updating all of these beneficiaries, kind of having a consolidated net worth can obviously aid in that process as well. But we always appreciate the the clarity and who owns the next steps when we work with you and your firm.
0: And I think it's important to establish that in any good uh, attorney-client relationship, just making sure who's responsible for what and how it can get done. Because there's nothing worse than feeling like, you know, you hired an attorney to take care of this, and then calling them someday and saying, "Oh, well, I talked to my financial advisor, and they said that the, the beneficiary designations haven't been taken care of." And the attorney says, "Well, I thought that was your financial advisor's problem. I thought they were going to handle that." I think that's one of the the, the nice things that I've noticed about working with Foster and Motley is you guys are pretty proactive about making sure that those things are taken care of, and whether uh, you know it's you take care of it directly or give some follow-up or confirmation to make sure that we've taken care of it on our end. Generally, it gets done. And I think that's the important part. All right. I'm going to give you a softball, Jake. Where
1: do you keep your documents? I get this will. I get a trust done. I have a power of attorney, a
0: healthcare power of attorney. Where do I keep those? Do you keep the originals? Where do I put the originals? So I don't love to keep original documents for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't ever want the client to feel beholden to me. So if the client wants to make a change and they decide that you know they've met somebody else that they want to help with the work, uh, they, they are in control of their documents. They can take their documents wherever they need to to make those changes. So I don't like to keep originals for that reason. But uh, what I do think it is, a it is important that clients do hold on to an original will. That is the main document that we have to have an original of Uh, The other documents that are in a a general plan, let's just assume that a client has a trust, uh, will, financial power of attorney, healthcare power of attorney, and a living will. So they have all five of those documents. The only document really that we need the original of is the will. So making sure that they keep that in a safe place is important. Uh, Our practice is to maintain copies electronically of all of the documents. So we have all of those. I know um, a lot of people that I work with have... Vaults or electronic ways to maintain all of their documents. What I don't love is, uh, safe deposit boxes. I know a lot of people will, uh, rely on those, but if you don't have someone else authorized to access that box, then when you pass away, we can't get the original will because it's in that box and we have to go through the extra steps to make sure we have the authority to get that box open. So I always recommend a nice filing cabinet at home or a fireproof box or something like that safe at your house that the people that you've named in your documents uh, are aware of how to access. Because really that's the biggest problem we find is people you know, lock these documents up and then no one knows how to get to them. So we just want to avoid that. So anywhere they can keep you, you can keep them in a safe place with your other important documents, I think is appropriate. For me, I have a nice file cabinet in our sunroom at our house uh, that, you know, serves its purpose. And that's where my documents are today. So <laughs> for yeah, what that, it's worth. Yeah, that's great practical advice. It's really helpful.
1: Um, in the world of COVID that we're still experiencing, uh, is it possible to get an estate plan done? What does that look like? How is it different?
0: Dave, it's funny that you've asked. Uh, many people have said, Jake, how, how has business been since uh, the world has changed. And I would say it's busier than ever. I think that, uh, COVID has given people an opportunity and the time maybe, uh, to focus on some of these plans that they've put off for, uh, some amount of time. And so we have had as many meetings as we had before, probably more. Uh, now those meetings do look different to your point. I mean, we are meeting via zoom, uh, more often now we, uh, Definitely have in-office and in-person meetings, um, but I think the the process really hasn't changed. And for me, the process typically starts with uh, some type of introductory email where we send out a questionnaire asking for some basic background information. Once we get that questionnaire back, uh, we reach out to schedule a meeting, whether that's in person or via Zoom, maybe over the phone. We have that meeting where we talk about kind of the overall goals, what we hope expectations will be, what we ultimately want to accomplish. We tend to settle on some idea of how much it's going to cost so that there aren't missed expectations going in. And then from that meeting, if the clients are prepared uh, for the discussion, a lot of times I can leave that meeting with the information I need to get drafts prepared. We, we spend a, a couple weeks drafting documents. Once we get drafts out to the client, they have a chance to review them. Then they reach back out to us and we schedule a time to meet to sign everything. Start to finish the Process can take anywhere from a couple of days to several months. You know, my record is eight years. I would not recommend that. Uh so you know, we like to we like to move it along a little quicker than that. But I would say the average plan from start to finish is somewhere in the, the month and a half to three month range. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, Jake,
1: I think we're gonna wrap it up here. We've left some meat on the bone. I mean, heck, we didn't even get to do you need a trust or does a will suffice? So Uh, We'd love to have you back at some point in the future. Really appreciate you being our first guest on the podcast. Uh, Appreciate our listeners. Uh, Encourage all of our listeners to follow us. You can learn more at fosterandmotley.com. And Jake, thanks for only using one. It depends. Uh, I was going to give you three or four. You only used one. So really appreciate you being on and providing practical advice about estate planning.
0: Thanks, Dave. I'm not going to lie. It's been pretty difficult. There are multiple times that I wanted to lead with It Depends, but I held myself back. So appreciate you having me. And thanks for all the work that you guys do.
1: Yep. And in the words of Jake Samad, do not let perfect be the enemy of good. Until next time, take
0: care. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available.
1: The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content, including mention of specific investments or planning techniques, is for informational and for educational purposes only. It is not intended as a recommendation or a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.